The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay. Hello. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jack Wilson. I'm actually on vacation as you're listening to this. If you're listening in January 2017, I post this, scheduled to post this before I left. But who knows when you're actually listening to this? You know, it's strange how this works. It really could be at any time after January 2017. And in fact, what seems to happen when I look at the podcast statistics is that people listen to the most recent show first, and then they work their way backwards. And our audience grows over time. It keeps getting larger and larger as more and more people find us or hear about us. So it occurred to me that most listeners, most people who are listening to the show are actually listening to it in reverse. They didn't start with episode zero and move all the way up to 128. They started at something in the future. Episode 200, maybe, and they've worked their way down. So they have heard more of those shows than I have. They they know more about the show than I do. That's so strange. It's my show. And yet I'm sitting here in the dark, and they're fully informed. Maybe they've listened to all the previous shows, too. Maybe they started at show 500, listened all the way down to episode 129, Then they went back to show zero and listened all the way forward, up to 127, and here we are, episode 128. (laughs) For me, this is just a stop on the journey, but for them, maybe for you, this is the final episode. Suddenly, I made myself very sad. I didn't want it to be over so soon! I'm not ready to say goodbye. (laughs) Let's read an email to cheer us up. Ah, sorry. There's a knock at the door. Hmm. Hello? Hello, I'm Oliver Twist. Oh, hello, Oliver. please, sir. That's all I'm asking for. And guess who's been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Oh. Ah, I guess he ain't a bad sort. When he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. I'm only trying to help Oliver. I care less about meeting some old writer fellow, but I would like some more gruel. Won't you please throw a few shillings at Mr. Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. I thought I'd put Oliver in the closet. Poor lad, I'm glad he's out. Even if he is a little cruel to Mr. Jack Wilson, the insufferable drudge, he has a good, kind-hearted message. Throw some shillings our way. Here at the History of Literature, we have been working hard to try to bring you the very best in literary podcasts. We're happy you've chosen to join us. If you'd like to support the show with a donation, please consider heading over to patreon.com literature to help us pay for equipment, server space, and all the other costs associated with this show. If you'd rather make a one-time donation, you're in luck. Historyofliterature.com slash shop has a link where you can buy me a coffee. 
or a couple of coffees, or a whole jorum of coffee if you're in the mood, and we will consider ourselves grateful. On to the listener feedback. Here's a short note from Giles. He says, My 17-year-old son is reading Catcher in the Rye at the moment. Love your podcast, Jack. Your Madame Bovary episode is, in my opinion, one of the best things on the web. Thank you, Giles. The Madame Bovary episode, <laughs> that little episode, the little episode that could. I'm so glad you liked it. I have to say that little episode has probably gotten more feedback than the rest of the episodes combined. But I'm very flattered and grateful for your kind words. Here's another email. Cher Monsieur Wilson, was this your crazy idea? Let me, let me stop there. The answer to that question is always yes. Always in my life, I've learned that about myself. As soon as I read the question, I got a sinking feeling in my stomach, and I thought to myself, oh no, I've messed something up again. Guilty. There are certain questions where I just respond, yes, guilty. Was this your crazy idea? Yes, guilty. Were you responsible for this disaster? <laughs> yes, guilty. Are these your rats? Yes, well, you get the idea. Here's a good question. <laughs> this happened the other day. Have you heard the story about the professor who's giving a lecture and he said, that's the interesting thing about double negatives in the English language. In the English language, two negatives make a positive statement, but two positives never make a negative. And a guy in the back row says, yeah, yeah. I had something similar happen the other day, an epiphany of sorts. We were eating Chinese food. And my 10-year-old got a fortune cookie. He threw the fortune on the ground and he said, that's not true. So I picked it up. The fortune said, ignorance is never the answer to a question. So I said to my son, what do you mean that's not true? When is ignorance the answer to a question? And he said, I don't know. Oh, boy, I am the straight man to a pair of comical children and their mother. I'm the the target of zingers all day long. Okay, enough about me. Let's go to the email about me. <laughs> this one has a bit of French, which I will translate rather than disturb you with my butchering pronunciation. Dear Monsieur Wilson, dear Mr. Wilson, was this your crazy idea? Our papa sat us down next to our wood fire on Christmas Eve to read The Dead by James Joyce and succeeded in putting us all to sleep, maman included. Can you really imagine two young girls in France being obliged to, to take this? <laughs> no sooner had Lily seemed to reject Gabriel's coin than maman was nodding her head with closed eyes. And while Freddie Malins may not have been truly screwed, we had had enough and were snoring on the canapé. We were quite amazed that Papa says, you have read Dubliners, Dubliners more than ten times. <laughs> this is a beautiful email. We do have to thank you for inspiring Papa to read again. He hadn't picked up any great works of literature in a decade until he started listening to your podcast a year ago. Now all we hear is that we could learn so much from some fellow named Holden Caulfield, or we could do with a spell at the International Sanatorium Berghoff. We don't know what any of this means, but thank you for giving 
meaning to Papa's life again. He keeps saying he wishes you would deal with Albert Camus' The Fall. We hope this won't put any more crazy ideas in his head. Happy New Year 2018 from rural southwest France. Yours respectfully, Sophia, age 14, and Ellie, age 12. P.S. Papa just bought you some coffee. Well, I love this email. Thank you, Papa. And thank you, Sophia and Ellie. I hope you discover the joys of literature someday soon. And at the same time, you will hopefully recall your father's sincere attempts to interest you in James Joyce. And you will look back with fondness at those drifting days next to the fireplace on Christmas Eve, where your father was doing his best. Next up, we have Mike Palindrome president of the Literature Supporters Club, who stopped by for our 10 Best Animals in Literature draft. Mike amazingly did not pick anything from the Magic Mountain, which is where that International Sanatorium Berghoff reference came from. But Mike, I think we need a referee around. Mike is such a slippery character. He's abusing his power as president, perhaps. A sly dog. You'll hear for yourself the way he criticizes my picks in such a hypocritical way. But I don't want to spoil it for you. So I'll wait until the end to say my piece about that. (laughs) Ten Best Animals in Literature, coming up. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again for a discussion of animals in literature is Mike the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Oh, boy. This is a draft. I am so excited to hear what your picks are. I immediately wrote down all kinds of animals, and then I realized my list was way too long, and I was going to have a hard time picking. And I developed some criteria to try to help me out. And in the end, I'm not real happy with my list. Uh, (laughs) It was at once, it was very easy and also very difficult for me to 
to pick my animals that I want to take in the draft here. Yeah, I I basically went with children's books or young adult fiction, and then but I had two adult picks, and they were both satires. Mm, okay, so. well, sounds like we're not going to have much overlap because I crossed children's books off my list on purpose just because oh, it seemed okay. like. Uh, well, we can get into that as we start talking uh, about the books we chose. So, why don't you go first? As usual, and I'm glad to hear that I think you maybe didn't take my number one pick. I thought my number one was going to go very early, but what did you take as your number one? I took Charlotte's Web. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, of all the so, children's books, that might be the best, the best use of animals. I don't know. So I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to pick books um, that had made an indelible impact on me. And I think mm-hmm. Charlotte's Web kind of stretched my idea of anthropomorphism to the limits because as a kid I found spiders absolutely disgusting mm-hmm. as well as pigs and um <laughs> right I, right so those are this, not the uh the soft cuddly animals like you know that so many Peter Rabbit or Winnie the Pooh a lot of children's books have they're yeah. almost made for the stuffed animal version of the character so Koreans generally don't like animals. I'm, I'm Korean, and a, 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 a stark memory from my childhood is my mother watching the Muppet Show with me and oh. being appalled by the <laughs> being appalled by the flirtatiousness of Miss Piggy. She 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 just found it. There's a Korean word actually, which means it's like a combination of like disgusting and slimy and evil, and it's um it's. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's like Jingaroa, and she would always say that whenever Miss Piggy came out. <laughs> so. Do you think that it was, uh, she just objected to the the wantonness of Miss Piggy, or, the, or just the think, fact that she was a pig? I think one, you know, one time I asked her about it a little bit, and she said, why is the, that pig wearing clothes? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. What exactly does she? Doesn't she have a little, some kind of little top or something? She has pearls on. That's yeah, it. She, no, no, she has a top and pearls. She might have like shoulderless, a shoulderless dress, and, <laughs> and she's showing a lot of flesh. So, uh, well, she's got like I'm looking. Oh, she she wears a lot of different outfits. I'm looking at some pictures yeah. here. She wears like gowns and and other kinds of dresses and but yeah she'll she'll have open shoulders and uh <laughs> kind yeah. of a, uh this so is it's already it's, taking it's, a turn so in the book it's an unlikely friendship but in in my life it was just an astoundingly amazing uh, you know like star-crossed lovers type friendship and mm, yeah um so charlotte is wilbur's wilbur's the pig charlotte is the is the spider charlotte is wilbur's best friend mother figure advocate and um without giving away the ending if if mm. you haven't read it um right. it, it, it's just a perfect ending and really it reflects how the, the real world works that you know everything comes to an end mm-hmm. and the memory is is what endures and it's yeah. a beautiful book, and E.B. White is one of my favorite writers. He's sort of most famous now for his children's books, but his essays yeah. are still worth reading. And I think for a, a whole generation of people, he was kind of a standard 
essay yeah. writer. He wasn't viewed as a children's author, but he was the guy who was in The New Yorker and Esquire, and he wrote these... Oh, I guess he's famous as the Strunk and White, uh, White as well, but he... Yeah, he's like a a master of good prose, and he also he writes beautifully about living on a farm, which he kind of retired not retired to but retreated to. I guess left New York and went and lived on a farm, and he writes beautifully about that. Uh, and he seems to have applied all of his observations and all of his insights into humanity into this children's book, which a lot of people view as being maybe the saddest children's yeah. book they remember, but also kind of a, you know, that it's a formative experience when they read Charlotte's Web. Yeah, I, I remember as a kid rereading the last two pages because I couldn't believe the end. Mm. I was like, is there something I missed? You know, like, <laughs> is that really the end? Yeah. And just walking away kind of just, you know, bummed out, really bummed out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good pick. And uh, Stuart Little is another uh, one that I had on my honorable mentions, another E.B. White uh, children's book with an oh, yeah. animal character. Okay. Right, so so my yours? first pick, I'm going to take Moby Dick. <laughs> so, I, I I had that. <laughs> on my list, but I, I wrote, it's he's too human, the whale. <laughs> so, he's not an animal. Well, now, that's interesting, because I took uh, non-human animals off my list, including talking animals. You you jumped in with, with Wilbur and Charlotte. I'm, I'm going to suggest that your pick actually had more human-like animals. <laughs> they could talk. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Moby Dick, 1851, Herman Melville novel, didn't go anywhere with the critics, in fact, was panned by a lot of the critics, and it wasn't until decades later, after Melville had died, that it really took off as being credited with maybe being the greatest American novel. It's, I think it's the greatest novel with an animal's name as its title. I don't know. I can't think of another. Uh, I couldn't think of a real rival uh, mm, to that. Yeah. And it's been called the Bible of American literature, which I think is a, a good way to sum it up. It's probably a better way than to say it's the greatest American novel because that's disputable. But to call it the Bible of American literature, it it describes how sprawling it is and how wild and poetic and philosophical yeah. it's it's got passages that are very exciting and also passages that are very informative and it's exhausting it's like a religious text it's maybe uh maybe too much to take in in a in in one or two sittings there's so much to think about and it feels yeah. like melville just poured out his everything he had into this book it just it feels like he's uh almost tormented in trying to get everything that he's thinking about into this book and all of the, I don't know, you get the feeling like his his pen is racing to catch up with his mind as he's, as he's telling the story and going through all the different aspects of whaling and the, the crew and the, the whale itself and Ahab and his obsession. And it's just a, it's a book I, I, probably need to reread this year. It's been a while since I've read it, and I'm kind of looking forward to reading it again. 
I reread it uh, recently, and it was uh, my second time. The first time I read it in college, and I read it in three days. Yeah. Um, so it was nice to read it. I, I think I took a month to read it this time. Mm, yeah. And it was a totally different experience reading it at that pace. And it's um, kind of it's kind of built to be read to be savored like that. It's it's got yeah. short chapters and and they cover different topics and uh, it's, I think it's a good read to sort of spread out like that. I love the opening with yeah. Queequeg and Ahab. Yep. And you're you're right that it is the the whale has got these human like qualities and I like that it was based on a actual legend of a whale there was a uh, a whale called mocha dick which was yeah. a whale that had attacked at least 100 vessels and sent 20 boats to the ocean bottom there were rumors mm. that mocha dick was uh, this vengeful whale and people knew that it was mocha dick because it had all of these rusting harpoons stuck Jeez. sticking out of its back wow. and so it would surface and it it's uh, there, there was one incident in particular where sailors had killed a calf and its mother, and all of a sudden Mocha Dick appeared, and they they said it was just crazy, like it was just enraged. <laughs> you know, just the idea that this huge animal is swimming through this vast ocean, but it has mm -hmm. the power to be furious and almost to understand what humans are doing and to remember and to seek revenge. Uh, it's just a fascinating idea. And then to have this this captain who's in charge of this crew, and they're on these close quarters and living in this claustrophobic world, and the idea that everyone on the crew will either be with Ahab or, or afraid of Ahab or against him, but they're all subject to this guy's obsession. And the way that that carries them the places that it takes them to it's a fascinating way to use an animal in a narrative yeah it's a, it's, a, it's an amazing book and i love the the big battle cuz norm you know sometimes you don't get that epic battle at the end when there's such a build up um yeah and i was thinking of like blood meridian cuz harold bloom considers blood meridian and moby dick as the the two best american novels you know in the last like mm -hmm. 200 years and mm -hmm. i'm not sure in blood meridian the the showdown between judge holden and the boy i don't know if i, I don't think i felt as satisfied mm. when when they actually show down yeah so well, that's interesting that bloom uh bloom liked it and i guess i'm not that surprised that he liked moby dick i'm a little surprised he put blood meridian right up there with it but yeah. I, anyway, Faulkner wished that he had written Moby Dick. D.H. Lawrence called it one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and my last uh, note that I jotted down here was, I have this story that I think about a lot, and uh, Moby Dick is at the heart of it. Jack Kerouac went to visit, I think there were some students at Columbia. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I can't remember if it was when he was a student or if he had come back to give a reading or something. And everyone was talking about literature and he jumped in and he said, you guys are talking about this all wrong. And they had been talking about Melville and they were saying, you know, oh, did you read Moby Dick? Yeah, yeah. But did you read Bartleby the Scrivener? Yes. Or did you read Billy Budd? Yeah, yeah, that's good too. And they just kind of 
they were checking off boxes, he said. And he jumped in and said, this is all wrong. Here, You guys are just talking about critics and, and essays about the books and the books that you've read. And he said, here's how you should talk about Moby Dick. There's this crazy captain and this crew is on this ship with this crazy captain and he's obsessed with this whale and he's on his way to kill it. What do you think about that? and he really wanted people to jump in and engage with the story and the ideas in the book and to think about what it would mean for their own lives and what it tells them about the human condition and it was a good reminder to me of uh, what I liked about literature and what to focus on and not get distracted by trying to feel like there was ground I had to cover or uh, you know, all the extraneous stuff that uh, comes along with literature sometimes. All right. So he, here's my number two. I I, I, I do think we, we're kind of picking in parallel universes, but whatever. <laughs> um, so I went with uh, White Fang by oh, Jack London. Yeah, that was on my honorable mention, too. So I, I think it's I mean, it's children's fiction, but it's also kind of young adult fiction. I think I, you know, I think you can read it in junior high school too. Um, mm. So it's published in 1906 and uh, by Jack London. And it's account of a kind of a blow by blow account of the life of a part dog, part gray wolf. Um, and it, it's from the point of view of the, the animal. And I, I actually, when I read it as a boy, I kept track of the types of fish and fowl he killed in the mm. back of the book. Because there's there's so much hunting, um, but you know when I was thinking more about it, uh, you know, for this podcast, I think one of the things that really appealed to me is that he's kind of an anti-hero, and mm. he, you know, he's asocial, and there's like a the backdrop is the Yukon Gold Rush. It was like in Canada, it was a hundred thousand prospectors arrived in like 1899. And there was, uh, an air of amorality and there was, a, there, there were, there was a lot of betting and gambling and pro- prostitution and dog fighting. And so that, so white Fang is forced to become a dog fighter and he's forced to take on larger and larger dogs until he comes up against this vicious bulldog. Hmm. He he barely makes it out alive. Did you consider the Call of the Wild? You know, I I've just not I, I've never been a big fan of that book. Yeah. yeah. Or, or I think I think it's because I read White Fang first, mm-hmm. and none of the violence and alienation is in Call of the Wild. I think I mean I don't remember the the plot of Call of the Wild, but. I feel like Call of the Wild was written for younger kids. Yeah, that could be. So there's a a quote I have from Jack London. And he was talking about White Fang and and the Call of the Wild. And he said, quote, I have been guilty of writing two animals, two books about dogs. The writing of these two stories on my part was in truth a protest against the humanizing of animals, of which it seemed to me several animal writers had been profoundly guilty. Time and again, and many times in my narratives, I wrote, speaking of my dog heroes, he did not think these things, he merely did them, etc. 
and I did this repeatedly to the clogging of my narrative and in violation of my artistic canons, and I did it in order to hammer into the average human understanding that these dog heroes of mine were not directed by abstract reasoning, but by instinct, sensation, and emotion, and by simple reasoning. Mm, That's yeah. interesting. It's uh, it's one of the things that I like about these books, where I'm so fascinated by the idea of animals being that we can't really understand what's in an animal's mind, but there's more there than we're able to understand also. I was entranced by the way he, you know, hunted down animals and and then eventually the tables are turned on him when he's captured by humans and forced yeah. to dogfight. So. Okay, for my number two, I'm going to take the poem The Tiger by William Blake. This was from his... Uh, collection Songs of Experience in 1794, and it's been called the most anthologized poem in English. Uh, I don't know if it, if you've read it in a while, but it's essentially it's a very simple poem. I guess it's about 20 lines, very short lines. It's it's understandable by anyone. You know, a, a child would be able to understand it. But the ideas in it are very deep and and thought provoking. It's really about the idea of creation by an intelligent creator. And if God is omniscient and God is good, then who is it who creates things that are evil and powerful and dramatically inspiring for their savageness and ferocity? And the tiger kind of represents that in the poem. And it's I'm always surprised by how I get kind of carried away by the poem. It has a real uh, momentum to it. I don't, I don't, I must have read it years ago. I don't, I don't remember it, but I'll, I'll have to reread it. It's worth a read. I'm trying to decide. You know what? Maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get a recording of someone reading it and I'll drop it in mm -hmm. here. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer? What the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? What dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye Dare frame thy fearful symmetry. I was just, that reminded me of um, the Rilke poem, The Panther, which mm. I reread recently. Yeah. And um, the panther is in a cage. The poem is, is, is basically about how you, the gaze of a person um, on a panther in a cage and the way the panther flexes its muscles and is still prowling, even though it's limited to this small space here's the question as it's posed in blake i guess let me put it this way so he says tiger tiger burning bright in the forests of the night what immortal hand or eye 
could frame thy fearful symmetry. In what mm. distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? And then there's a part where he says, Did your creator smile mm -hmm. his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? And it, it always gave me sort of a chill to think, yeah, was <laughs> if, if God is, is creating things and he's this all-powerful, all-good being, uh, was he getting kind of a thrill out of creating all the bad stuff too? Or is this the product of something else altogether? Yeah, I mean, I, as you were reading it, I just, um, I, I know those lines, the fearful symmetry, that phrase is, you know, I think it's hard to forget. Yeah. I, I, I remember first hearing that and thinking, what a, what a great poem, the way it launches into that phrase. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very short, but, uh, but every line is kind of, kind of hits home. Okay. So what's your number three? So with three, I went for the first adult, um, fiction on my list, which is uh, Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, mm, okay. which has uh, this enormous talking cat, Behemoth. <laughs> um, but, it's, you know, it's interesting. The, I, I didn't even realize this. I thought it was kind of written in the 50s and 60s from a look backward by Bulgakov, but he actually wrote it in 28 mm. um, or the 30s, but it was due to censors, was not published until the 60s. Right. In case people haven't read it, it obviously the Soviet Union was a, a, an atheist country, and that was their official uh, stance toward religion. That you know there was no God, and so Bulgakov, who was an established writer at the time and given many guidelines on how to write Soviet pro-Soviet fiction, was um, offended by some of the atheist poetry that was being published at the time. And so he wrote this satire where Satan and his friends visit the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And it, it included in the retinue is uh, this enormous black cat that plays chess and <laughs> drinks vodka and is right. very sarcastic. And it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun novel if has, people haven't he read pistols. it. He has a mustache and pistols. Yeah. And he's like, you know, he's always like, you know, gilding his whiskers and it's just, it's just <laughs> over the top. Like, you know, take the most arrogant, um, self-serving fat guy and, and, but turn him into a cat. And, right. Um, I, I thought this was pretty funny. Apparently the building where Bogokov lived in Moscow has been turned into two museums in honor of the master Margarita and also mm -hmm. Bogokov and, it's the site where um, a lot of Bulgakov fans uh, gather and also where a lot of satanic groups gather. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> You've taken the book quite seriously. <laughs> so is the cat, I don't remember, is the cat transformed? I mean, it, it can become he can, human for... Yeah, uh, he can become for, human. Yeah, okay. And but, it, but it like walks on two legs. Yeah, and he's like he wears a bow tie, and he's like the size of like a a potbelly pig. He's like a pretty big guy, and, right? Um, right. But and there's he, no, it's not formally a human, like cursed or something. No, no, no. He's a cat, and so. <laughs> okay, 
Uh, so I, with my, that's a good pick for number three. For my third pick, I'm going to take our first example of something that's a very common literary trope, which is the mm-hmm. uh, metamorphosis, uh, animals that are metamorphosed from humans. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take Kafka's Gregor Samsa as he turns into a an insect. Mm. Uh, or a monstrous vermin, some translations have. There's a lot of dispute about what exactly should be called a dung beetle, or Nabokov was angry about, you know, Nabokov with all of his butterfly knowledge and everything was very angry about all of the (laughs) translations and said, he's a beetle, he's a species of beetle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was going through it again in preparation for this, and I just, I love the way that Kafka produces the effect by telling you that he's turned into this monstrous vermin and he's at the same time he's describing with such precision the way his legs are you know wiggling in the air and he's trying to figure out how his limbs work and he can't get out of bed and he's trying to roll from one side to the other but at the same time he's thinking about you know how he's going to be late for work and how he missed his train and now the the chief clerk is going to be upset and they're going to blame him for things. And he's, he's, you know, at first it's not clear if maybe he's imagining this, maybe he's a, some kind of having some kind of nightmare or he's a hypochondriac or he's, he's having some kind of breakdown. Uh, I'm using this to sort of represent a lot of the other uh, metamorphosis uh, examples of animals, like the ones in Ovid and Shakespeare and, all the fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast and the Merlin and the King Arthur tales and the Odyssey where the men are turned into pigs. And there's something, I don't know that I'm, I'm such a fan of this in general. A lot of times I, my reaction is mm-hmm. just uh, to kind of think, Oh, come on. You know, I said, <laughs> when they say, you know, the witch came and cast a spell and, and suddenly the person was turned into a toad. I think, Oh, come on. Um, <laughs> Is that really that interesting or insightful? I'm not that, I don't want to imagine myself being turned into a creature, but in Kafka, uh, I do enjoy it. And it just seems like the way that it, it treats his shame and his, his guilt and the way that the others around him treat him with such fear and, and violence, uh, it really, I find it very moving. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, you know, it's hard to use animals in a, in an interesting way. I think that, you know, my next pick was about a, a gullible animal because, you know, I loved like a fox and the hound as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure, was it, was there, there was a movie based on a book or, I mean, I guess it's based on a, a folk tale. Yeah. It might friendship. Be, was it one of Aesop's fables? Yeah, maybe. So I, I had a novelization of Fox and the Hound, the movie, which I loved mm. as a kid. <laughs> so, and I, I think what I, <laughs> I, I must have loved about it was just how innocent and gullible both of them were. And the idea that, you know, these like, like Darwin species rivals could become friends. And so, yeah. Um, so my next pick was uh, Boxer, the horse from Animal Farm. Oh, um, yeah. I thought you were going to take something from Animal Farm. Because there is nobody more naive and gullible in uh-huh. literature than Boxer. <laughs> uh, 
I mean, he he supports Napoleon. He gets attacked by Napoleon's dogs. When he's, you know, injured, Napoleon sells him to a butcher so he can buy whiskey. And as he's being carted away, um, one of the other smarter animals calls out like, oh, no, you're being sent to, you know, the the, the knacker. And... um, you know, either the boxer or a, a, a more naive animal says, no, they just borrowed that van. It's like, oh, man. And he <laughs> thinks he's being taken to the hospital. <laughs> right. It's like that far side comic where the the cars, the dog is in the car and he leans out the window and there's another dog that's standing on the sidewalk and the dog... <laughs> dog leans out the window and he says, Ha ha, Rex, I'm going to the vet and then I'm going to get tutored. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, okay, Animal Farm. Well, you had a lot to pick from in Animal Farm. Yeah, I try, I, I try to be positive. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I, I think everyone remembers Napoleon and Snowball. Yeah, right, right. Um, okay, uh, that's a good pick. So that was your number four, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my number four, I am going to take, uh, go back to poetry, go back to romantic poetry. It's interesting. Everything I have is kind of from within 50 years of each other so far, I guess. Well, I guess Kafka was a little bit later, but uh, I'm going to take the albatross in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, the Coleridge Mm. poem. When I read this, I think I thought it was the other way around. I thought that Coleridge had chosen the albatross because of the cliche and not that the cliche had had come out of the expression that something was an albatross had come out of the poem. It's kind of like, I guess Moby Dick is like that too, that we say, you know, that's his white whale, uh, the way that these expressions have passed into the culture. So the albatross is also a symbol like Moby Dick, but it's this bird that's following the ship, which is viewed as good luck. But the ancient mariner shoots it with his crossbow. <laughs> and everyone on the ship then blames the mariner for the bad luck of the ship. And some some bad things happen to the ship. It does appear that it's been cursed. And it's this feeling. Uh, and I think I, I really got this feeling the best from Patrick O'Brien's novels about how debilitating and how all-powerful it was for the crew when they would go into the doldrums and these crews that are dependent on the wind for their sails. And and they would be in these stretches where they would know for days they weren't going to move at all, and they couldn't get anywhere. And, And unless the wind picked up, they would eventually just die of heat and starvation. And it's got that line in the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, where it says water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Anyway, he shoots the the albatross and everyone on the ship blames him for the bad luck that follows. And they eye him with suspicion. And he's on this. It's that feeling you have if you've ever bungled something and you're in this small group, like an office setting or something, and you know you can't get away and everyone's going to remember that you were the one who made the mistake and they're all kind of looking at you <laughs> and you you just feel awful and terrible and you also feel like that you can't start over. You don't get to unshoot the albatross. 
And eventually, I had forgotten this part, eventually the crew hangs the albatross around the ancient mariner's neck just to remind him and to make him feel his shame of what kind of misery that he had imposed on all of them by shooting this sign of good luck. Wow. I also, I liked this uh, connection that it had. I found this quote from uh, Coleridge where... Mm. He was talking about he and Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth had come up with this idea when they were on one of their walks. And uh-huh. the idea that he was he had been reading this book uh, like a memoir by a sailor. And he had he was talking about this idea. And actually, in the memoir, there was a black albatross. And so this sailor had shot it because he assumed that it was bad luck because of the color. And they then Wordsworth kind of had the idea of, well, what if you what if you made that a a superstition and, you know, turned that into a poem Mm -hmm. and they kind of talked it through. And then by the time their walk was finished, he had the whole plot of the poem ready to go. Coleridge said, the thought suggested itself to which of us I do not recollect that a series of poems might be composed of two sorts. In the one, incidents and agents were to be, in part at least, supernatural, and the excellence aimed at was to consist in the interesting of the affections by the dramatic truth of such emotions as would naturally accompany such situations, supposing them real. And then he says, um, you know, he talks about the rest of the poems in the lyrical ballads, how they're in some of the others, the subjects were to be chosen from ordinary life, And then he says, basically, that Wordsworth is going to do those and that he's going to do the supernatural ones. He says, And this idea originated the plan of the lyrical ballads in which it was agreed that my endeavors should be directed to persons and characters supernatural or at least romantic, yet so as to transfer from our inward inward nature a human interest and a semblance of truth sufficient to procure for these shadows of imagination that willing suspension of disbelief for the moment which constitutes poetic faith. With this view, I wrote The Ancient Mariner, which I had never really realized that that famous phrase, the willing suspension of disbelief, had come in such close context with the the talking of the, the Ancient Mariner. And a lot of people had criticized the poem for being improbable, and Wordsworth had kind of acknowledged and said, yeah, maybe that maybe that was improbable. But it was also criticized for not having a moral, and Wordsworth always defended it and said, if anything, I think it has too much of a moral. I think it should have been more like the Arabian Nights, where there was no uh, example or lesson that was drawn from it. It should just have been the story, and the story should have stood on its own. But in any case, it's it's a really rich idea for a poem. It's a fun poem to read, and it's become you know, handed down to us as one of the most famous poems in English. Where else do you see an albatross? I mean, what an unusual yeah, uh, yeah. A- animal to... Yeah, I th- I think you almost... Um, I think now any use of it in literature probably has to be sort of a nod to Coleridge. Yeah. Okay, so we're up to your last pick. So this one was hard, so we'll, we'll do some honorable mentions afterward, but... I wanted to talk about um, animals and mental illness mm. because it yep. seems like animals are an excellent way to depict people who are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And so I think primarily of Toad from Frog and Toad. 
and, and also <laughs> Mr. Toad from Wind in the Willows. Ah, yeah, I had them both as honorable mention, but I wasn't thinking of the uh, mental illness angle. Yeah, yeah. So like Toad, Toad's. Uh, I mean, he's obviously on the Asperger's um, OCD spectrum, and they, <laughs> they they are they've been eating sweets all day, so they get a box of cookies, and Toad says to Frog, "Hide the cookies." And um, Frog says, I'll put them in a box. And Toad says, you know, I know where the box is, so tie the box up with a ribbon. Um, and Frog does that. And Toad says, well, now I'll just cut the ribbon. And Frog says, well, I'll put this, the, the box out of view um, on a shelf. And uh, Toad says, no, I can reach up there with a ladder. And so on and on it goes. And I, I have to say, reading this to my daughter when she was younger, it's one of the few books that, as an adult, I got I, I got new stuff out of it each time. Yeah, that Frog was not only Toad's um, therapist, but also Frog was using Toad's bad behavior and compulsive behavior to kind of cathartically act out in a way that Frog would never do, because Frog himself suffered from some you know some mental <laughs> mental drawbacks I, I started to see yeah yeah that toad was at least free to be compulsive and neurotic and frog wasn't so yeah there's certain books that you know you know frog and toad are, were like that like i loved those books when i was a kid and if you go to my parents house they're still there and it's like there's certain books that I think even as a kid, you're aware that they're a little bit deeper or or richer. You know, like we, we junked a lot of the books that I had. There was not much to them. But something, uh, you know, there must have been something in me that recognized, oh, no, these 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 books are a little, I could enjoy these as an adult as well. Yeah. And they are. They're they're like little Zen poems or something. Yeah, I mean, the I guess the it's the whole idea of like getting a moral lesson in a story. You you get the moral lesson, but on the way there, you get all these little lessons. It's like with um with Woodhouse, you know, you get the the little end where things are wrapped up, but along the way, you know, there are these little twists that yeah. You sort of like think, ah, I mean, I'm glad that happened to that character. <laughs> so. Now, here's here's my question about children's literature. Why do they have to be a frog and a toad? <laughs> right. Because people can't tell them apart. It's like the whole alligator crocodile <laughs> thing. <laughs> well, no, I mean, why do they have to be animals at all? Why couldn't it be oh. Jim and Steve and just be two pals? I think it's because you you expect Jim and Steve to be mentally ill, and you don't expect animals to be mentally ill. <laughs> so that's my like. Whenever I I can't, I'm always shocked when animals act like humans, and I shouldn't be because every right. animal you encounter in literature is human, basically. Yeah, just you about know? all of them. I struggled to find my five. Yeah, but then you. You know, um, like Paddington, um, mm -hmm. I think there are moments where, admittedly, it was, a, you know, a kid's mind. But when I was a kid, I thought, that's exactly the way a bear would act. Mm. 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure it was, but I was convinced that okay, that's you know the bear made a mess with his marmalade. Like, yeah, why? What? What bear wouldn't? Well, so. here's here's my theory. You know, if you think of it in terms of E.M. Forster's flat characters and round characters, mm-hmm. by having these characters be animals, mm-hmm. you're allowing them to be flat. They can have one thing. You know, like Pooh wants honey, or you know, Eeyore is obstinate and they have, they can have a single mindedness and they don't have to necessarily change because right. you can read it and you'd be like, well, of course he's, you know, he's, he's an owl. Of course he's wise. He's never going to be foolish. He's wise. They can change mm-hmm. a little bit or develop, but you can also just keep them with their motives or their characteristics being reduced and pure Mm-hmm. and easily recognizable and identifiable with their the animal side of them. But you can put them mm-hmm. in all these human scenarios and, you know, like what if they had a birthday party and what if they were all at the, you know, trying to, to build a new house or whatever they're doing. But you, you can have them be these kind of reduced in complexity characters without it being too, uh, if they were human, they wouldn't have, a, they would need more complexity. But then you take a character like Ramona, Ramona and Beezus, and isn't Ramona as 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 one dimensional as Paddington? Mm. You know, so maybe that's children. Yeah, maybe Ramona could have been, you know, I don't know, an owl. Yeah. Well, Ramona develops a little bit as she gets older, right? Ramona and yeah. her father is a. I think that's just a devastating book. Uh, where she's trying to get her father to stop smoking. It just... Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And then her father loses his job. And uh, that's Beverly Cleary yeah. didn't usually get that uh, dark. That was almost yeah. more like Judy Bloom territory. Yeah. When the dad loses his job and takes up smoking and is hiding the fact that he can't get work. <sighs> and then... It's dark. And then she... Ramona writes a poster that says no smoking. Do you remember this? And yeah. he says, who is this King fellow? And she's <laughs> like, who? And he says, Nosmo King. Who is Nosmo King? And it was because she ran out of room on the paper and she had to go to the, and I remember reading that and thinking, that's just exactly what grownups do. Like here's, here's Ramona <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. being so unselfish, caring so much for her father and his health, and he passes yeah. it off as a joke. Like, I'm not going to listen to this little kid who's trying to save my life, basically. I'm going to make a joke about it and, and treat her like this little girl. Okay, so I'll take my last pick. While we're on the subject of mental illness, I'll take mine. Um, I'll stick with that theme. And this was a, a poet who actually was in an insane asylum. And while he was there, he wrote these this long uh, poem. I guess you'd call it a poem. It's a manuscript written mm-hmm. in verse. And uh, then it was he was written around 1760. The poet's name is Christopher Smart. And then the manuscript was lost until 1939. And there's an extract from it. I don't know if you've ever read this, but it's called "For I Will Consider My Cat Jeffrey." Have you read this? No. <laughs> it's so good. It's seven, the extract is 72 lines from this huh. huge poem. Uh, when I read it, I thought it was 
a satire or I thought it was, uh, I thought the narrator was a speaker. The first time I read it, I didn't know anything about Christopher Smart. And I thought he was a character. I thought the speaker was a character, someone trying to hang on to his sanity and to get a grip by focusing on this cat. And then I guess that it was actually, that actually was what he was doing, was he had zeroed in on his cat and had written these lines of poetry, but they're really wild. They're all over the place. And he's also trying to understand God and and he's very has these very religious feelings. But it's the lines will say, you know, for I will consider my cat Jeffrey. They all start with the word for. It says, For I will consider my cat Jeffrey, for he is the servant of the living God, duly and daily serving him. For at the first glance of the glory of God in the East he worships in his way. For this is done by wreathing his body seven times round with elegant quickness. For then he leaps up to catch the musk, which is the blessing of God upon his prayer. For he rolls upon prank to work it in. For having done duty and received blessing, he begins to consider himself. For this he performs in ten degrees. For first he looks upon his forepaws to see if they are clean. For secondly, he kicks up behind to clear away there. And he kind of goes on and it's, He's describing every line just describes something different about his cat. And but some of them get kind of wild, you know, and he'll say, uh, uh, he'll say, for when he takes his prey, he plays with it to give it a chance. For one mouse and seven escapes by his dallying. And then he'll say, you know, for he is of the tribe of tiger. Uh, and he says, for he purrs in thankfulness when God tells him he's a good cat. <laughs> and, he just, uh, and then he says, one line is, for the English cats are the best in Europe. <laughs> and he says, for he is the cleanest in the use of his forepaws of any quadruped. <laughs> and then uh, he says for he is the quickest to his mark of any creature for he is tenacious of his point for he is a mixture of gravity and waggery for he knows that God is his savior for there is nothing sweeter than his peace when at rest and then here's here's how it ends I'm skipping over a bunch but here's how it uh, here's how it ends so he says uh, <laughs> at one point he says for by stroking of him I have found out electricity <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, uh, for the electrical fire is a spiritual substance which God sends from heaven to sustain the bodies both of man and beast. For God has blessed him in the variety of his movements. For though he cannot fly, he is an excellent clamberer. For his motions upon the face of the earth are more than any other quadruped. For he can tread to all the measures upon the music. For he can swim for life. For he can creep. <laughs> oh man so jeffrey it's been called the most famous extract in english literature and also the most famous cat in english literature so i don't know that's probably disputable um but uh let's go through some of the honorable mentions which ones did you have to leave out i was going to reread this book because i i, I couldn't re quite remember um enough to discuss it as a as a real pick but um in michael chabon's amazing adventures of cavalier and clay mm -hmm. so chapter 12 takes place in antarctica and um one of the main characters and his dog oyster um are stranded 
in a base that's abandoned and with a snowstorm and um, the dog sacrifices uh, his life to save him. Mm. Uh, if people have read Chabon, I, th- I think the dog sacrifices his life. I was going to reread it, so, but I, if he didn't die, <laughs> then I, I apologize. Um, but it, it, right. there was a, I remember there was a piece I read recently that said that in every one of his books, a dog dies, and mm. Chabon is a dog lover. He has a dog. A dog dies, and a sexually ambiguous male, you know, uh, his predilections, uh, kisses uh, a clearly gay character. Hmm. So. Huh. Interesting. I wonder if a dog had died, if one of his pets had died. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, if people remember Wonder Boys, the dog dies in Wonder Boys. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, that chapter, chapter 12 of the novel, um, the descriptions of the dog and the dog's loyalty um, and, and as someone who doesn't really like dogs, I was, I was, you know, really touched by it. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I grew up always a little bit afraid of dogs, um, because my father was afraid of dogs. And so whenever a dog would, he had been bitten by a dog when he was little. And so whenever a dog came near, he would kind of go crazy to, you know, he'd throw himself <laughs> in front of me to protect me from the dog. And so I think I developed this this fear of dogs when I was little. And, um, but even so I've, you know, I read where the red fern grows and wept at the end. And, um, you know, dogs dying is a, a tough thing to read. It's kind of a, a standard rite of passage for children, I guess, is to, to read about beloved pets passing away or to experience that themselves to learn about, uh, learn about death that way. Um, anything else? Um, I had, of course, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Did you know that that, I mean, I remember that might've been the first time where I got a real reference where I read it and I thought, oh, this is just like Jesus. (laughs) You know, I remember being struck by that, that it was, it was tapping into all of those emotions that I was also learning in Sunday school, you know? Yeah. I mean, when they shave him. Yeah. And they put him on the tabernacle or whatever it is. Yep. uh, Yep. That is, I mean, that's probably like one of the the clearest memories I have as a kid. Those are are so powerful. I started to read it uh, to my kid and they were too young and they got freaked out. And I was getting a little freaked out by the, the witch and the Turkish delight. And the oh, way that uh, great. Yeah. the way that he's he can't stop himself from eating it, and uh, it's uh, those are really uh, really powerful children's books. Yeah. Um, I I also had honorable mention for Ralph and the mouse and the motorcycle, <laughs> which I just thought. I yep. mean, I guess that's that's the whole thing with like for Fred Flintstone or you know being able to just like make something go by revving, (laughs) making a rev sound. Yeah, he just makes the sound, and that makes the motorcycle go. That's another, (laughs) if people don't know, that's another Beverly Cleary uh, children's book. He has a little, his mouse has a little crash helmet from a a (laughs) ping pong ball, I think, half a ping pong ball for his crash helmet. Um, And then I had a pick that um, I personally have not read, but my daughter loved, which is the Carbonell, the British series Carbonell. Mm-hmm. Um, about a girl 
by Rebe- uh, by Barbara Slay about a girl. It was written in the fifties and sixties. She buys a broom and a cat from um, in a marketplace, and the cat starts talking to her, and she realizes that the cat was kidnapped and is the king of cats, hmm. and was kidnapped by a witch. And the girl and the cat um, work together to free the king of the cats. Hmm. So, but which, which along with Paddington, um, made me start to wonder if, um, perhaps Brits do animals better. Yeah. Well, there's also the golden compass books where the, the the spirit animals, um, yeah, you know, but they also maybe do children's books better. Mm, Yeah. You know, I, I mean, the Beatrix Potter and the Peter Rabbit books, uh, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, you mentioned the wind in the willows already, uh, lion, witch and wardrobe. You mentioned like, these are all, um, these are all British books. There's Harry Potter has got Hedwig, the owl is a good character. Oh, and, uh, Alice in Wonderland and the Cheshire cat, uh, the jungle book stories, Rudyard Kipling, um, kind of ticking through some of my honorable. Oh, Raul Dahl. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Mr. Fox. Um, and others, uh, what else did I have? Ferdinand the Bull, <laughs> a listener had emailed. That's a, a favorite children's book. T.S. Eliot has that nice book about cats that was made into the musical, uh, hmm. Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. I thought about taking that. Uh, Wait, Ferdinand the Bull is the bull that refuses to fight and wants yeah. to just lounge? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I I enjoyed that. Yeah. yeah, I think they're making that into a movie. I think that's coming out. Um, <laughs> I also have. How are they gonna? How are they gonna fill an hour and a half of him refusing to do stuff? <laughs> <laughs> it's like Bartleby <laughs> turning Bartleby into a film. Yeah, well, he's uh, <laughs> lover, not a fighter. The Tolstoy's. Um, Tolstoy's horses I wanted to include because there's Anna Karenina because they're described so well and they they kind of come to life. It seems like a really good way for a a, a writer in an adult novel to have animals without having the animals talk or or have too many human characteristics, but just to to describe them and their personalities kind of come through just from the physical description. Uh, I had that on my honorable mention list. And I had Poe's story, The Black Cat. I kind of wanted to have a, a horror story. Let's see. I was trying to find something in Shakespeare, and I didn't want to take another metamorphosis type mm-hmm. thing. And so I had uh, just a few stray lines, the uh, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Uh, <laughs> and the great line, uh, exit pursued by a bear. And, and a little, I wanted to give a little honorable mention nod to Percy the Bad Chick, which uh, our friend of the show, Margot Livesey, had was the first the book that first turned her on to literature uh, when <laughs> she was a little girl. It's a book I don't even know if you can get it anymore. I tried to to find it on Amazon and I couldn't. Um, seems to be uh, a little bit lost uh, to the sands of time. Jaws I had on my list. Uh, Toto from Wizard of Oz. Uh, the Velveteen Rabbit. Let's see, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, the Black Stallion. Oh, I, yeah. I love the Rats of Nim. <laughs> I just, yeah. What's the 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 work in the laboratory? Yeah, Nim is uh, Nim's a real place. What really? Yeah, it's the wow. 
National Institute of Mental Health. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's probably one that I should reread. That seems like... Uh... Oh, and then the other one. Uh, did you ever read Watership Down? Yeah, I with, love that with book. With all the rabbits, yeah. yeah. That's another one that I'd probably they're still like, enjoy. They're like violent rabbits also, right? There's a there's yeah. a tribe of violent rabbits that go after <laughs> like the good rabbits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that, that maybe is taking me through my list, except when this was, uh, uh, the idea here was originally suggested by one of our listeners who thought that maybe we should do it writers and their pets. And so I did want to mention one writer and mm -hmm. his pet uh, to kind of close here. And this was Henry James and his dog. Uh, mm. I, I, uh, I don't think of Henry James as being a particularly sentimental person. I think of him as being a little bit detached and kind of over-refined, if anything. But yeah. he... He he had this dog that he loved, and I remember when my wife was doing her dissertation on Henry James, she was immersed in all of the stuff, and I was reading all the novels, so I would know what she was talking about and thinking about, and we were mm -hmm. going through the James biography, the volumes of his biography, and and it's much of it, so much of it is so dry and so earnest and so devoted. He's so dedicated to literature, but it can be a little bit arid, but then there were these passages where he uh, he was a landlord and he uh, was renting out his house. And so he was writing these letters to his tenant. And I wanted to read a little bit from it because he talks about his dog. So he says to her, uh, Lastly, I take the liberty of confiding to your charity and humanity the precious little person of my dachshund, Max, who is the best and gentlest and most reasonable and well-mannered, as well as the most beautiful small animal of his kind to be easily come across, so that I think you will speedily find yourselves loving him for his own sweet sake. The servants who... <laughs> <laughs> the servants who are very fond of him and good to him know what he has, and when he has it, and I shall take it kindly if he be not too often gratified with tidbits between meals. Of course, what he most intensely dreams of is being taken out on walks, and the more you are able to so to indulge him, the more he will adore you, and the more all the latent beauty of his nature will come out. He is, I am happy to say, and has been from the first, he is about a year and a half old, in very good, plain, straightforward health, and if he is not overfed and is sufficiently exercised and adequately brushed, and he, he's going on, like, giving his tenant all these instructions for what it would be, you know, to, to take care of this dachshund Max. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then he writes another letter, and this was the one that uh, my wife and I just couldn't get over he's talking about the house lamb house is the, the so he's making arrangements with the tenant for the rent that she's going to pay and and says you know i received your first payment and take this letter as a receipt and then he says i left lamb house yesterday looking so dreadfully sorry to part with and so easy and pleasant to stay in withal that i took refuge in burying my nose in Max's little gold-colored back and wetting it with my tears. <laughs> but it will be, it will all be dry and right for you when you come. And it just seemed like Henry James, for all of his 
you know, insight into people and for the way he kind of turned his eye on, you know, creating these characters, he himself gets kind of lost in that as a, as a person. But these moments of humanity that come out from his letters and the idea that this old man is picking up his, his beloved dachshund Max and he's so sad to be leaving him that he has to bury his face <laughs> in his back and, and uh, sort of mop off the tears from his face in his dog's uh, fur is uh, just a very sweet image. <laughs> okay, well, let's leave things there. Mike, thanks again for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for the this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike Palindrome, El Presidente himself, for gracing us with his presence. Did you hear what he tried to do? He criticized my number one choice, Moby Dick, for what he called being too human-like. And then what did he take? A talking pig, a talking spider, a talking frog, a talking toad, a talking cat, a talking horse, and most of them wear clothes. The cat has a mustache. (laughs) Wears pistols. And I take a white whale that lives in an ocean and doesn't talk to any humans. He's not out there wearing some giant tuxedo or something. I guess that's a tribute to Melville that the whale does seem human. A worthy foe. I'll stand by my number one pick. Mike's a worthy foe, too. He's my worthy foe. My best fiend. He calls forth all my powers. We'll have him back again soon. Thank goodness for you, dear listeners. I'm so glad you chose to spend some time with us today. We'll be back soon with a much-requested episode on Franz Kafka. So keep tuning in. You won't want to miss it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>